I had a little, um, a little scenario all set up in my mind. I thought today when I came in, the pastor was going to say, you're, preaching Sunday, you're teaching Sunday school today, right? And I was going to say, this week? I thought it was supposed to be next week. Are you kidding me? It's not this week, is it? But instead, he said to me, you're persecuting the saints today, right? And it threw me for a loop. I didn't know what he meant at first. But I guess on your part, me being here with a microphone in front of me is persecution for you. So the only thing I can say is endure. <laughs> um, the hardest part for me about teaching a Sunday school class is deciding what to, what to bring. And, of course, I remember not long ago I did this survey of the Pentateuch, and we rushed right through it. And my first impression was I should go back and cover some of those things that, that we didn't do. But then as I thought about it, I thought, no, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the chronology of the last week of Christ. Today happens to be Palm Sunday. I don't know whether you're aware of that or not. I'm sure you are. We don't make a lot of Palm Sunday on our church. We don't have a lot that's going on. Matter of fact, yesterday, my older daughter, who is a music director in a church in Lincoln Park that does observe Palm Sunday or celebrate Palm Sunday, not a Catholic church, uh, but she said to me yesterday, she said, what are you guys doing for tomorrow? I said, what do you mean? Oh, it's Palm Sunday. What are you going to do? I said, we'll sing our hymns that we normally sing and the ensemble is going to do. You're not doing anything special for Palm Sunday? I said, no, we're not. And uh, I guess part of that probably stems from the fact that there are some elements in Christianity today that make a big deal out of Palm Sunday and Holy Week. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it's wrong. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. Matter of fact, I think it does us very good to, from time to time, remember those things. So what I wanted to do today was look at the life of Christ, the events in Christ's life for his last week here on earth. And this being Palm Sunday, we traditionally celebrate what today on Palm Sunday? Maybe you don't know about Palm Sunday. <laughs> The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Christ has been out with his disciples. They've been, they've, he's been teaching. They've been wandering around the countryside. Matter of fact, in just a few days before today, we find, we find today Christ is making his way down through Bethany into Jerusalem. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. But what you have to remember is that in Christ's day, the major mode of transportation? Feet. You walked every place you went. Unless you were fortunate enough to have some kind of an animal that you could ride. Most people did not. So they walked. So two miles is not like, you know, I live a mile from here. I get in my car after church is over. I get everything in my car. I take off. And in three minutes, I'm home. If I had to walk that, and there was some discussion about maybe I should have walked to church this morning. Glad I didn't have to because it was raining. But it's only a mile. You can do a mile in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Depends on whether you're whistling Amazing Grace or Stars and Stripes Forever. I used to, when I, when I was on staff in Inner City, we only lived four blocks away from Inner City, and I used to walk all the time unless it was really bad weather. And somebody asked me, how long does it take you to get there? And that's what I usually told them. If I whistle John Philip Sousa March, I get there in about four minutes. If I whistle Amazing Grace, it takes me a little longer. 
but, uh, you know, and those of you that know me know that I whistle all the time. So, Anyway, Jesus Christ is coming with his disciples. Now, Matt last week spoke from the book of James, and he told us that uh, James is written in three portions or three acts. And I mentioned to Matt afterwards, I said, Matt, that, that was great that you ended the end of Act 2, because what I'm going to do next week is start with Act 3 and look at the life of Christ in his last week here on earth. So what I have done is gone through the Gospels, and I'm not going to have you flipping back, back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we find events in each one of those Gospels that tell us what happened during that last week. What I would like to do this morning is center on the book of Mark. Center on the book of Mark. If you would turn with me, please, to the book of Mark, and we're going to start with the 11th chapter. The 11th chapter. And uh, what we find here in the 11th chapter is that Jesus has made his way down through Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's on his way there. He told the disciples, that's where we're going. He told the disciples, the reason I'm going there is that man might be able to persecute me and kill me so that in three days I can rise again. One of the questions that comes to my mind is this. If someone who were in a place of authority who really knew exactly what was going on said to you, you have only six days to live, what are you going to do with these last six days? Probably we would, there are all kinds of things that can go through our mind. Now, if someone would be more specific and say to me, well, on Friday, you're going to die in Brighton, Michigan. You know where I would be on Friday? <laughs> Not very close to Brighton, I'll tell you that. I wouldn't just go there and say, okay, here I am. Uh, you know, however, we have to realize that, that Christ is different than we are. The reason Christ came to earth was so that he could die on the cross. He knew that. He knew that ahead of time. The reason he did it, however, he also knew. And that's the part that should get us. That's he did it for me. He did it for you. He did it so that he could pay for the sins of the world. God, in his infinite wisdom, when he created the world and created man, knew exactly what course of action man was going to take. And it would be, here is God, and I'm going this way. We still do that today. We still do that today. If we were to analyze our actions in light of what God's word tells us, we would have to admit that here is God, and we're going off one way or the other, usually away from God. Occasionally our minds, our thoughts are directed back toward God, which is great. They should be. I'm an advocate of being a full-time Christian, which is difficult to do. I'll be the first to admit that. When I say a full-time Christian, I mean I'm not any different on Sunday than I am on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. My life should be permeated by the gospel to the extent that I'm consistent in my actions. I'm consistent in my treatment to other people. Now, talk to my children. 
if you would ask my girls when they were younger, did your dad ever yell at you? <laughs> You'd get a <laughs> type of response. Uh, I, I know that that's not always the best thing to do. I never beat my children. I did spank my children. But I should treat them the same way that I treat everyone else. And one of my real concerns in life is that we sometimes treat our family and our family members differently than we treat our friends and our acquaintances and our church family. Sometimes they get the brunt of our, whatever you might want to call it, wrath or whatever. But we need to be careful how we, how we conduct our lives. And as believers, as Christians, we should be consistent in our lives in the way we act toward everyone around us. If I'm different on Sunday than I am on any other day of the week, then that's much to my shame. And, and I'll have to tell you that there are times when I am. Uh, we just need to be aware of it. So here we are outside Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples. If you've turned to Mark chapter 11, and the reason I chose Mark over the other Gospels is we have similar incidents in each of the Gospels about what happened during the last week. Some Gospels include events that the others lead out, leave out. None of the Gospels actually include the whole, everything that happened during that last week. But if you do a study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the, the triumphal entry on to the crucifixion and the resurrection, you'll find that there are many events there that parallel each other. And there are others that are inserted in, in one book that are not in the other. But I chose Mark because I believe that Mark gives us the best chronological view of what is happening during this last week. So, if you were to take an outline this morning, your outline would be very simply seven points. Better make it eight points. <laughs> Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into the debate about whether the triumphal entry was on a Sunday, which is the traditional belief, or whether it was on a Wednesday which a lot of people believe, or whether it was any other day of the week. I'm assuming at this part, at this point, that here we are in the 21st century. We are celebrating, all of Christendom is celebrating, not most of Christendom, is celebrating good, uh, the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday, today, on Sunday. So we're going to use that surmise for here. We're just going to go on from there. So Sunday is our first day. And we see on on. In chapter 11 of Mark, it says, As they approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus and the disciples, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. Jesus knew exactly where this colt, or I'm going to, to use what John and what Matthew call it, a donkey. In one gospel, it says a donkey and its colt were tied together, and they brought the two. In two of the gospels, it says a colt, and in one of the gospels, it says a donkey. I'm going with donkey for this reason. The purpose for the animal was for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was for the king to ride on. 
Jesus being the king, the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Everyone accepts that. When a king rode off on a horse, he was usually going to warfare. When a king rode on a donkey, that was a symbol that he was coming in peace. And how did Jesus come into Jerusalem? Through warfare or through peace? He was coming in peace. Now, this created a little bit of a problem, which we will have time later probably to talk about a little. The fact that he was expected by the masses to be the king coming in to dethrone the power of Rome, who were in charge of the land during this particular time, and to overcome the Sanhedrin, which comprised the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But that wasn't Jesus' plan at all. And not a lot of them knew that. The disciples certainly knew that because Christ shared that with them as they were on their journeys around. He, he, he emphasized many times that he was coming and his kingdom was going to be a kingdom of peace. So we're coming down. Christ knows exactly where to find this animal. He tells two of his disciples, go. They go. They bring it. When they get there where it is, they untie it. Someone says to them, hey, what are you doing? Well, we're taking this because the Lord needs it, but it will be returned shortly. They said, okay, go ahead and take it. We find that in, in chapter, in verse 4. They went and found a coat outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying this coat? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, where did all these people come from? Well, it's my guess in studying what's going on here before this, as they're coming down through Bethany. You remember what happened in Bethany a few days prior to the triumphal entry? Remember the story of Lazarus, whom Christ raised from the dead? Lazarus lived in Bethany. I was fortunate enough to be there one time in the Holy Land. They took us to a place that they said, this is the tomb of Lazarus. Well, <laughs> may have been. It may not have been. I don't know. But I could just imagine if this is actually what it was. It was underneath a house. There was a house built on top of a cave that had an exterior interest, entrance. But I could just imagine that if that were, in fact, the tomb of Lazarus, with Lazarus being inside, Christ outside, said, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, the people didn't want him to do anything because Lazarus had been dead for a few days. Lazarus came right out of the tomb, still wrapped in his linen cloths. I'm sure this attracted a lot of attention from the town folks and people all around. Okay, when I say all around, word can travel pretty fast. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. No doubt in my mind that people in Jerusalem knew about the resurrection of Lazarus also because this is not a common occurrence. This is something that only happens once in a lifetime. Oh, it's about to happen again in another week. But basically, yeah, it's very unusual. But I'm sure that there were a lot of people that came out to see Jesus, the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. And there were those who, who 
the disciples and others who followed him as Jesus made his way down from, from Capernaum, which is up on the top of the Sea of Galilee, made his way down across the Jordan, down under the Jordan River, getting into Bethany and Jerusalem. We're now talking about 50 miles. Of course, they're walking. But as he's doing this, he's also stopping in places, performing different miracles, healing blind people, preaching to the crowds, a lot of dissertations in the other Gospels that tell us what he was about during those days. Now he's down here, so we have a lot of people that are actually following Jesus. Um, the disciples, this crowd of people, they, they, they are expecting, they don't know what, because Christ has done many different things in the, in the days ahead. So they're, they're, they're anticipating that, boy, something's going to happen. Now, in this particular point, we find them where they are recognizing that Jesus is the coming Messiah. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The crowds are shouting. And traditionally, the branches that they laid down were palm branches, hence Palm Sunday. But we, we today, we today should, should glory in the fact that Christ did come. It's past tense for us now. We can look back at it and say, here's what happened. But Christ came triumphantly. People, crowds thronging around and, and praising God, praising Jesus for who he was. He came triumphantly. Um, says after that that he entered Jerusalem, verse 11, and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Christ rode into Jerusalem, all the people there who are praising him. He went in, he went into the temple, he looked around, and because it was late in the day, he went back outside the city to, to spend the night in Bethany. Where did Jesus stay when he was on earth? Any ideas? My best guess is there were probably a lot of people that would say, why don't you spend the night at my house tonight? Jesus, I'd love to have you as my guest tonight. My other guess is that he probably spent the night with his disciples. As we heard this morning in our message about Abraham being a tent dweller, I, I could imagine that the 12 disciples and Jesus many nights slept in tents or just slept out under the stars. Um, I don't know. I don't know. can only guess. That's not important. What is important is why did he come? What did he do for you? What did he do for me? So Jesus has gone out of the city back into Bethany. When I say the city, I'm speaking of Jerusalem. Back into Bethany. And then in verse 12, it starts out and it says, The next day as they were leaving. So Mark has given us a, a time indicator here. Mark is saying whatever day this was, that he entered into the city, and we're using Sunday for Palm Sunday. Now, in, in verse 12, we're starting with the next day. So here we are now at Monday of the last week. tells us in uh, chapter 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, 
Jesus cursed the fig tree, just this one particular tree, not all fig trees. Although if, you, if you've ever eaten figs, you might say he put a curse on all the fig trees. But he didn't do that. It was this one tree. And, and this to me, this to me is, is what I could use as what preachers call a springboard text. This particular three verses here, 12, 13, and 14, where Jesus curses the fig tree. Because I believe there's a lot in there that we could learn from. And I've, I've, I've already got a title for the sermon, and it's Don't Be a Withered Fig. How's that sound for a good sermon? Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But the way that could be developed is this. This time of year, when is summer? Hmm. Not soon enough, right? This time of year, summer's still in a few weeks in the future. Although I heard by Friday and Saturday, it's supposed to be up to 70 degrees here. be like summer almost. But summer's still a little ways off. When is the time for, for most fruit to grow? Summer. This would still be spring. Now, in, in the Holy Land, the place where we're talking here, where Christ was, it's a little different than it is now. Their growing season is longer than ours is in Michigan. But this was not the time yet for the figs to be ripe. However... Christ saw this tree off in a distance, and it had leaves on it. Now, if you know anything at all about fig trees, how many of you know about fig trees? Anybody? Good, then I'll share with you what I don't know, too. <laughs> fig trees, the fruit appears either before the leaves or at the same time as the leaves. The fruit always appears, and this is taken from people who are familiar with fig trees, but they say the fruit appears first or the fruit appears simultaneously with the leaves. Now, don't you think in your mind that Christ, being omniscient, knew there was no fruit on that tree? Sure he did. But he saw that tree, he saw leaves on it, and I can imagine in his mind he's saying, I can use this as an object lesson for these folks that are with me. So he went over, there's no fruit on the tree, he cursed the tree. Don't be a withered fig, meaning don't have all leaves in your life and no fruit. See where you'd go with this withered fig sermon? You, you use this text to spring into the book of Ephesians where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit and how we are to live our lives. I don't have time to do that this morning, so no withered figs here today. As he goes on into the city, then it says in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a home of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his attention. This tells me at least two or three things about the Jewish leaders who were there. They desired to kill Christ because he's driving money changers, merchants from the temple. Well, in that day it was common practice in the temple courts 
that they would sell, especially at this particular time, because this time of year, what, what we're celebrating, what the Jewish nation is celebrating, is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and also the Feast of Passover. Christ came to be our Passover sacrifice. That's what this whole passage is all about. So we have this Passover where people from all around the countryside are coming into Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for Passover. Well, I wish I didn't have to say this, but the priestly system was pretty corrupt in those days. The sacrifice that was brought for this had to be an unblemished sacrifice. We can go all the way back into the book of Exodus to find out what the requirements are for a Passover sacrifice. Many of the many of the animals that were brought would have to be approved by the priest to be sacrificed because it was the priest that actually killed the animals. And they found that if I can say, no, there's something wrong with that animal, then they have to have another. So we can have someone over here who will sell that to them at an exorbitant price, of course, and then they can give us a little kickback and we can sort of add to our pockets that way or add to the treasury that way. Um, the corruptness of man, we see it everywhere we go. It was no different then. These are the Jewish leaders that I'm talking about. And like I say, I wish I wish I didn't have to say that. But another thing is they had already determined in their hearts that Christ was a hazard to their ministry because Christ taught peace, Christ taught love, Christ talked about his heavenly father. And, and the, the Jewish leaders, who basically were Pharisees and Sadducees, who didn't get along with each other anyway, this was sort of a common bond to them to bring them together to say, what are we going to do with this man? We've got to get rid of him somehow. And if we look back in the book of Luke, we can find that Caiaphas, who was appointed as the high priest by the Romans for that year, Caiaphas had already told the, the Jewish people, what we really need to do during this time is kill one person for the whole nation. And they had already decided that Christ was going to be that one person. Not accidentally. God knew this. God had it all planned way, way, way before. We can look back at it and say, wow, look at all these things that have gone on, how, the, how it happened. We have to bear in mind that it was planned by God, and what man is doing is simply carrying out God's instructions, even though they're not aware of it. Or maybe they are. Maybe they are. Caiaphas probably got his knowledge from the Old Testament. There's a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that talks about one dying for the many. And uh, I think Caiaphas knew that. Um, if we go to the book of John, we could see, see the statement that he made. But we'll just, we'll just stay here and mark. So here they are now, going into the city. It says then in verse 19, when evening came, they went out of the city. What day are we on? Monday. I haven't lost you already, have I? We've got five days to go. Monday. So when evening came, they went out of the city. So then we see in verse 20, it says, In the morning as they went along, this would be the beginning of Tuesday. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus used this as a teaching element for his disciples. He says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, I think it's, it's interesting also that this fig tree, it says it withered, withered from the roots. I, I'm told that a fig tree, if you cut off any portion of that fig tree, about a foot or so, planted in the ground, you get another fig tree. I don't know that I could do that because I can't even grow up. Anything. Every time I plant something in my yard, my wife has to go buy another one and plant it herself. But at any rate, they say that this this fig tree, and unless it dies from the roots out, you can even cut a piece of the roof off, root off and put it in the ground, it would grow another fig tree. But uh, it's withered, it says, from the roots, and I think that's that's intentional. So Christ used this as a teaching opportunity for his disciples. Then it says in verse 27, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. And they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Now, you got to remember that the chief rulers, scribes, the Sanhedrin, they were all a little afraid to really step up and say something because Jesus has this mob of people that are following him. The Jesus followers in their eyes. And they were really afraid that if we go too far, we might incite that mob and they might turn against us. So we have to be very careful here. But on this occasion, they did step up and say, by whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus didn't give them an answer, but instead he said this. Verse 29 of chapter 11. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. It says in verse 31, they discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. They waffled. They knew, but they didn't want to answer the question. We don't know. So Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He's already in the temple. They disperse, leave him alone. He begins a teaching ministry. We go on down through chapter 12. We see different things that happen. We see that in uh, uh, chapter 12, he starts with a parable. In uh, verse 13 of chapter 12, it says, Later, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Jesus. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you, know, you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, their intent was to trick Jesus. Because if he said, we don't pay tribute to Caesar, then they go get the Roman authorities and said, this, this, this man is he, he's a, he's a traitor. He's committing treason. He says he, he doesn't pay homage to Caesar. 
But Jesus knew what they were up to. And you know the story. He had them bring a coin whose inscription is on the coin, Caesar's, pay tribute to whom tribute is due. If it's through money, give it to him. If it's through worship, give it to God. So another teaching example here. But the Pharisees, one one portion of the Sanhedrin. Then it says in verse 18, then the Sadducees, another portion of the rulers, the chief. Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And I can still remember when I was in Bible college. And, and in case you think I have a great memory, you have to remember that I didn't go to Bible college until after I retired from the Marine Corps. So I was a little older as a student at Bible college. But I still remember and... and I know that you all will remember this, those who went to BBC. I had a teacher there who said, and I remember about the Sadducees, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Easy way to remember that. Emmer, remember that? <laughs> I've remembered that. It's been a few years since I was in Baba College, but I, I do remember that. But the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, came to him with a question. And what was their question all about? It was about, what happens in the resurrection? <laughs> well, we don't even believe in the resurrection, but we want you to tell us what happens in the resurrection. Isn't that a stupid thing to do? Of course, Christ knew that. So he answered them in the same fashion that he did before. He answered them through wisdom and through a teaching situation where they were instructed. Now, we've got the, the, the chief priests, the rulers who want to kill Jesus, who have broken down into various groups, the Sadducees and the Herodians, it says, or the Sadducees came, then the, the Pharisees and the Herodians came and asked him questions, but uh, he, he, just, he just didn't give in to them. Then we go on through and we see that he's, he's teaching other things, other things that happen there. And then at the end of uh, verse 13, He's talking to his disciples about the day and the hour when, when God is going to be coming, when the kingdom is going to come. No one knows. So then we see in, in verse number, in chapter number 14, it says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. Well, if the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are only two days away, that is Thursday. That's, that's going to happen in the week. So now we're only two days away, so what day are we on? We were just on Tuesday. Now we're on Wednesday. Some of you may say, wait a minute. Thursday is not two days away from Wednesday. Well, and by the Jewish way of reckoning, if we count two days from today, today is number one, tomorrow is number two. By our way of reckoning, if I say two days from today, you're thinking Tuesday. So if I say to you, two days from today, why don't you come to my house for dinner? Tomorrow I spend all day laboring, fixing this dinner, expecting you to come because this is the second day. But in your mind, you're going to come on Tuesday. So you don't come on Monday. And I say, well, hmm, I guess they changed their mind. Now, all of a sudden, Tuesday, you show up, you knock on my door and you say, hi, we're here for dinner. And I say, okay, I think you missed it. It was yesterday. But you said two days. A lot of discussion on the days, when the days begin, even amongst the Jewish people. There's a, there's a difference in, in reckoning days. Some start their day at sunset and go to sunset. Some start their day at sunrise and go to sunrise. So that it really presents a problem unless you're very specific. If you have any dealings with anyone who is of a Jewish nature and you're talking about time frame, 
be specific as to what day you're talking about because there might be a difference in interpretation there. But here we are now on, on in chapter 14 on Wednesday. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. The Bible doesn't give us very much about what happened on Wednesday. It tells us here that Jesus was in the, in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, and uh, he was anointed with a, uh, a jar of expensive perfume. Uh, some of the disciples thought that was a, a crime, that they would waste this. Uh, Jesus said, leave her alone. She knows what she's doing. She's preparing me for my burial. Now, Christ had taught his disciples all along that this is what's going to happen. But for some reason, they just didn't grab a hold of that yet. I'm not sure why not, but they didn't. So this happens on Wednesday. And we don't know a whole lot more about what happens on Wednesday except that traditionally in the, in the Christian tradition, Wednesday is called Spy Wednesday because they think that is the day that Judas actually made the arrangements to, to lead them to Christ on Wednesday. I can't tell you that is true or is not true. I'm not sure. But it's traditionally known as Spy Wednesday, and it's very possible that this could be the day that Judas then made the arrangements to betray Christ. So Wednesday is basically over. We come to verse 12 of chapter 14, and it says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this brings us to Thursday, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? If you read through that passage there, you find that Christ was a little ambiguous in telling them where to go. And I think one of the reasons that he didn't just flat state out, this is where we're going to observe the Last Supper, was for, for Judas' sake. Christ knew that Judas was going to betray him, and, and Christ knew that he wanted to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. He wanted to use that as another teaching instruction for his disciples, for the church. This is where the Lord's table, or the Lord's supper, or communion was instituted at the Passover dinner, and uh, he, he needed to do that. So he didn't make this place known because if he had told his disciples on Thursday morning, well, here's where we're going to go, then that would have been a great opportunity for, for Judas to say to the Jewish leaders, hey, Christ and his disciples are going to be in this upper room, and there's only going to be 13 people there. All this whole crowd's not going to be there. You bring a few soldiers, and you bring yourselves, and you can take him. He didn't have the opportunity to do that. Christ told them, sent two of his disciples, go into the city, You'll find a man carrying a water jar, which is very unusual. Carrying water jars were, were the jobs of women. But he said, there's going to be a man carrying a water jar. You follow him, he'll lead you to the place where we're going to observe the Last Supper. Well, Thursday, then, when evening came, it says in verse number 17, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one of you is eating with me. And probably all together and all Separately, they said, is it I, Lord, is it I? Am I going to be the one that will betray you? We know through the study of Scripture what happened here at the Last Supper. We know that Judas was identified as the one that would betray him. Judas went out. At the end of the Last Supper, it says then that they, they sang a hymn and they went out. They went out to Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives, which is just a little way out of the city. You can, you can stand on what is called the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a little bigger than what we call Mount Trashmore in Riverview. You all know where Mount Trashmore is? 
the, or if you drive up 275, you see these big hills on the right and on the left with all the birds flying around, the caterpillars pushing, covering the garbage with earth. It's man-made mountains. Well, the Mount of Olives is not a whole lot bigger than, than one of these big mounds that we see out there. But you can stand on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, look across and see the city of Jerusalem. It's just right there. You go down through a little valley, the Valley of Kidron, they call it, and you go up into the, into the garden. But this is where Christ went. And we know that when he got there, he prayed earnestly. He told his disciples, pray with me. They, they couldn't stay awake. They, blah, blah, blah. You know the whole story. We'll not go through all that. But we're on Thursday evening. Judas brings the, the Jewish leaders now to betray Christ, to identify Christ. And Christ greeted Judas like he was a long-lost friend. He didn't say, what are you doing here? I mean, if, if it had been me and I, I knew that he was coming to betray me, I would have said to my disciples, hey, get this guy. Jesus didn't do that. He knew better. He was going willingly. He knew what his appointment was, and he was willing to do it. Why was he willing to do it? Because of his love for you and for me. Because we are sinners and Christ died for our sins. That's the whole emphasis of, of Easter week. But here we are now in the Garden of Eden. Or not the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, that's way back. Oh, boy. Garden of Gethsemane. They come, they take Christ, and from here, I'm not going to go through all the events that transpired during that night and early the next morning, but I believe that everything that you read from between uh, verse uh, 20, 32 of chapter 14... All the way through until uh, the end of chapter 14, verse 72, this is all taken place on Thursday evening after Christ was arrested. He was taken to the house of Annas, who was the Jewish high priest. Then they sent him to Annas' son-in-law, who was Caiaphas, who was the high priest that was appointed by the Romans. And then they, from there, took him to Pilate. Uh, when Pilate found out that Jesus was a Galilean, he sent him to Herod because Herod had jurisdiction over the area of Galilee. Herod sent him back to Pilate. Pilate tried to give him back to the Jews. Here's this situation where nobody wants to do anything. The Jews want to kill him. They had the right. They had the right to pronounce death on Christ. But they did not have the authority to carry out that death sentence. So they went to the authorities, the Roman authorities, Pilate. Pilate said, you know, I don't see anything here that would be worthy of death. I'm going to turn him back over to you. No, 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 we don't want him. We don't want him. We want you to kill him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Mm, I'm not so sure about this. Somebody mentioned he was a Galilean, sent him to Herod. Herod said, no, I don't see anything wrong here. Sent him back down to Pilate. Pilate said, I'm going to wash my hands this whole deal. You take him. He, he, he let them then crucify him through the Roman soldiers. Turned Jesus over to the Roman soldiers who took him, beat him, spat on him, put a crown of thorns on him. I can just imagine that, that early the next morning, which would be Friday morning, or Good Friday as we call it, but I can just imagine when Christ was, was publicly displayed again that the majority of the people didn't even recognize who it was had no idea this was the same person. They said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. I, I'm sure he was just a mess. He was beaten. It said they hit him with sticks on the head. 
Roman soldiers can be merciless. I presume I've never met one, but I, I, from what I read in the scriptures, from what I read through history, they can be absolutely merciless. And I can just imagine when, when they finished with Christ that next morning that uh, he was just unrecognizable. Matter of fact, we know that it says he, he, he stumbled when he was carrying his cross. They had someone else carry his cross for him because he was so weak, humanly, physically weak. So they let him off, and then it tells us in, in verse number, chapter number 15, very early in the morning, and this is Friday morning now, and it tells us if you read that passage through there, that Christ was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. At 12 o'clock midday, he, uh, the, the earth became dark. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus finally gave up, and it says his last words were, It is finished. When he died, earthquake, the, the veil in the temple rent from the top to the bottom was torn in two. And, and, of course, then we know the story that follows that as far as Christ being laid in a, a, a borrowed tomb. Had to be buried before sunset because this was their day of Passover by Jewish reckoning. Christ celebrated Passover on Thursday. The Jewish leaders wanted to celebrate it on Friday. So he had to be buried before sunset. So they put him in the tomb Friday. And uh, we know the story of how Sunday, three days later, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Friday being the first day, Sunday, the third day, he arose from the grave and lives triumphantly over death and over sin, over our sin. Can we be triumphant over sin? Yes, we can, through Christ, who paid that ultimate sacrifice from us. My plea to you today would be, as you go through this week, Think, read, if you like, the book of Mark or in the Gospels. Read all of them. Think about what happened on each day. The progression that went right up to the death of Christ and then ultimately the resurrection of Christ. Use that as a time for devotional during the week. It'll thrill your heart. I guarantee you, it'll thrill your heart. Be aware of this whole thing happening simply because God loved me. Simply because God loves you. He knew we were going to be sinners. He made a way for us to escape that sin. It's up to us now to make sure that we don't become slaves to sin, which we can very easily do. Easter is a glorious time of the year. Every day is a glorious time of the year when you're serving the Lord. But Easter is especially nice. Next Sunday, when I come in and see you for the first time, I might say to you, Something like, He is risen. If I do, let your response say, He is risen indeed. Because Christ has arisen from the dead. Triumphant over death, over sin, for me, for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had together. We ask that you would just uh, help us this week as we recall the events of things that happen as they're given to us in Scripture, that we might be aware of the fact that Jesus did this not for glory, but for us. Help us, Lord, to, to uh, repent of our sins. Help us to live the kind of life that would be pleasing to you. And help us to glory in the fact that you are a risen Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.